Let me ask you to open your Bibles, please, to the book of Joel in the Old Testament, Daniel, Hosea, Joel. That may help you find it to chapter 2. We'll be reading verses 12 through 17 in a minute. If you have your worship folder, the text is printed there. You may notice that the title I've given to the message this evening is The Great Need of the American Church. I was careful with the title. You'll notice it does not say The Greatest Need of the American Church. The greatest need of the American church or of any church never changes. Our greatest need is God. But if I were to ask you, what do you believe to be one of the truly desperate needs that we as a church in the United States have from God's grace, how would you answer? My one word answer is repentance. And that one word answer is what brings us to Joel chapter 2. The context is as follows. God has brought a devastating locust plague upon his people as judgment for their sins. How devastating. So terrible that all of their grain fields and even their grape vineyards have been stripped so that the people literally are unable to come to the temple in Jerusalem with the grain and the wine offerings that the Lord himself requires. But it gets even worse than that. Look at verses 10 and 11 of Joel chapter 2. They'll introduce our passage for this evening. The earth quakes before them, that is, before the locusts. The heavens tremble. The sun and the moon are darkened. There are so many. And the stars withdraw their shining. The Lord utters his voice before his army. For his camp is exceedingly great. He who executes his word is powerful. So who has brought the locust plague? God has. It is his army, and he stands at the head of it. Ray Ortland, the pastor and writer, comments on verses 10 through 11 this way. He writes, now there's a disturbing thought in verses 10 through 11. Our own Lord might be the one stirring up our enemies against us. We Christians complain about secular humanism, about postmodern radical subjectivism, about the public schools overbearing federal government, media bias, you name it, we gripe about it. We perceive ourselves as victims and pray for the Lord's protection. In one sense, this is right. We do live in evil days. Now, before I go on with this quote, let me read you another quote. 
This is from uh, David Hollinger, a retired history professor from the University of California, Berkeley, writing February 21st in the New York Times in the wake of the death of Dr. Billy Graham. This is his tribute, if you will, and I use the word tribute in quotes, to Reverend Graham. From the 1970s onward, the Grahams of American religion continued to espouse a cluster of ideas that remained popular with the white public, while the liberal ecumenical leadership, and it's clear that Dr. Hollinger sides with the liberal ecumenical leadership, abandoned these same ideas of Billy Graham as indefensibly racist, sexist, imperialist, chauvinistic, homophobic, and anti-intellectual. Now that sort of gets your blood boiling, doesn't it? And I read that and I say, I want to respond. And there's a proper place for response, to be sure. But maybe something else needs to come first. Let me go back to Ray Ortland and to what he says about verses 10 through 11. How astonishing it is, he writes, to realize that maybe, just maybe, our Lord himself is prompting these adversities against us, as he did in Joel's day. Maybe we aren't really the victims we think we are. Maybe we're part of the problem. And maybe we would be wiser to respond to the distress of our historical situation with less defensiveness and more repentance. One reason we see so little repentance in the world is that the world sees so little repentance within the church. So God turns up the pressure. To quote Matthew Henry, God brings us into straits so that he may bring us to repentance and so bring us to himself. With that introduction, let's turn, please, to the word of God, Joel 2, 12 through 17. Now, we aren't suffering a locust plague, but I think that most of you would agree with me that the church in this country is weaker and has less influence on our culture than it should. And I'm suggesting that one of the reasons for our weakness is a lack of repentance, and that we need to hear the call, as much as we need to hear any call, of Joel 2, 12 through 17. Yet even now, declares the Lord, Return to me with all your heart, with fasting, with weeping, and with mourning, and rend your hearts and not your garments. Return to the Lord your God, for he is gracious and merciful, slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love, and he relents over disaster. Who knows whether he will not turn and relent and leave a blessing behind him, a grain offering and a drink offering for the Lord your God. Blow the trumpet in Zion. Consecrate a fast. Call a solemn assembly. Gather the people. 
Consecrate the congregation. Assemble the elders. Gather the children, even nursing infants. Let the bridegroom leave his room and the bride her chamber. Between the vestibule and the altar, let the priests, the ministers of the Lord, weep and say, Spare your people, O Lord, and make not your heritage a reproach, a byword among the nations. Why should they say among the peoples, Where is their God? May God add his blessing to this reading from his holy and inspired word. The outline for the message this evening is very simple. What does God call us to do and how does he call us to do it? We see the what in verses 12 through 13. Yet even now declares the Lord, return to me with all your heart. Second line of verse 13, return to the Lord your God. That verb that's translated return is the Old Testament verb for repentance. God is calling his people in the face of his displeasure to repent. So what's repentance? It is, I would submit to you, a change in mind that leads to a change of heart and a change of will or a change of action. A change of mind that leads to a change of heart and a change of actions. Repentance begins in the mind. It begins with confession. Confession of our sins, which is essentially agreeing with God and his point of view concerning our sin. I'll give you an example. Just Friday in the school where I teach, I was sitting in chapel. I was watching the presentation and thinking to myself, I could do so much of a better job than he's doing. So much better. Does your pride ever get like an overinflated balloon? And the Holy Spirit came in that moment and he took his spiritual pen and went pop. He said, just who do you think you are? This inflated sense of your own abilities. And in that moment, I had a choice. Either to run and hide, God, it's not what you think it is. Or say, God, it is what you think it is. And it's terrible, and it smells, and I ask your forgiveness, and I ask for the grace of repentance. Repentance begins in the mind with agreeing with God about our sin, that it is sin. About four years ago, some of you may remember this, a group of fraternity boys at the University of Oklahoma got on a bus to go to a fraternity party. And as they were riding along in the bus, they were taking videos of each other, making 
incredibly racist comments. And somebody decided that it would be incredibly funny to post that on Facebook. The university, to its credit, expelled the next Monday every student whom it saw on the video. And one of the young men, I heard him on the radio a couple of days later, and he said, I just want to say to the whole world that I'm sorry because I made a bad mistake. No. A mistake is one plus one equals three. That's not morally wrong. You simply made an error. No, what you did is sin. And it's evil, and it's from the pit of hell, and by the grace of God, you need to repent. Repentance begins in the mind. It begins with confession, with agreeing with God about our sin. It's also in the heart, though. There is a grieving over our sin. Listen to the words of James 4, 8 through 9. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Be wretched and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. So repentance is in the mind, it is in the heart, and it is in the will. It issues forth in a change of actions. Repentance is sort of like uh, the man who made a U-turn on North Avenue right in front of me coming here to church this evening. He realized going west on North Avenue was the wrong direction, that he needed to be going east. And so he just pulled his U-turn right in the middle of the street, right in front of us. But that's what repentance is. I'm sinning. I'm going in the wrong direction. God is displeased with my sin. Therefore, by his grace, I will turn and go in the other direction. So repentance is a change of mind that results in a change of heart and a change also of the will, of our actions. Now, we all know that there is a repentance that is involved in conversion. A sinner repents from his or her sins and turns to Jesus by saving faith through the grace of God, trusting in Jesus alone to save him or her from sin, and to give him or her everlasting life because of Jesus' life without sin, his death for sinners on the cross of Calvary, and his resurrection, which makes him alive to save repentant sinners. But that's not the kind of repentance I mainly have in mind this evening. By all means, if you've never received the grace of God to turn from your sins and to trust in Jesus Christ alone for your salvation, cry out to the Lord in this moment, and today can be the day of your redemption. Because God saves genuinely repentant sinners. But the repentance I have in mind tonight 
which I think is missing from much of the American church and is foundational as a cause for the weakness of the American church is the repentance of those who do know Christ. Martin Luther, you remember, on October the 31st, 1570, launched the Reformation by nailing his famous 95 theses, 95 topics for discussion on the door of the castle church in Wittenberg. But do you remember the first of the 95 theses? Listen. When our Lord and Master Jesus Christ said, Repent, Matthew 4, 17, he willed the entire life of believers to be one of repentance. Repentance from sin should characterize the church. Repentance from sin by the grace of God should characterize your life and mine. That's the what of this passage. God is calling us, as he called Israel, to repent, to turn from our sins, that by his grace, relying on his power, we might walk again in paths of righteousness for his name's sake. But the passage also speaks of exactly how it is we should repent. I'm going to give you five adverbs here that the passage describes concerning repentance. Number one, in verses 12 through 16, we see that we repent urgently. We repent with the sense that this is important, that God is calling us to do this, and that now is the time. Again, verse 12, God says, even now, declares the Lord, return to me with all your heart. Not tomorrow, the day after tomorrow, two weeks from now, whenever you feel like it. Even now, declares the Lord. There is an urgency to repentance. Look how urgent it is in verse 16. Consecrate the congregation in the original language, these uh, commands are almost like staccato commands given by a sergeant to those in basic training. Consecrate the congregation, assemble the elders, gather the children, even nursing infants. And how urgent is the need for repentance? Let the bridegroom leave his room and the bride her chamber. The picture here is of the married couple about to consummate their marriage. And yet, God's call to repentance is so urgent, God calls them out of their rooms to join the rest of his people in calling out to God for the mercy, the grace of repentance. We are to repent urgently. Second, also in verse 12, we are to repent genuinely. Now this second point is right in line with this morning's sermon, right? 
Because God says in the second half of verse 12, repent with fasting, with weeping, and with mourning. There's the emotion of sin. And rend your hearts and not your garments. You see, there can be a temptation, as there was for Israel then, for us to say, well, the church is weak. It is not what it should be. But if we repent, God says, he will make the church strong. And so like putting a dollar in a Coke machine to get the Coke out, I'll repent and God will respond. In these days, the temptation would have been to say, okay, God, we'll repent. And when we repent, you call the locusts off and restore the crops. And God said, don't do this bit of just tearing your garments as if you were really sad about your sin when your heart's actually unaffected. You remember when you were a kid and you would do something wrong and your mom or your dad would catch you and confront you and you would cry and say, Mom, I'm so sorry I did that. And maybe you weren't like me, but I wasn't sorry. <laughs> I was sorry my mom found out about it. And I was sorry about what was going to happen when my dad got home from work. <laughs> I was sorry about that. But was there real sorrow in my heart over my sin? God is a holy God. We've sung about that. Our sin brings displeasure, it brings grief to his heart. Do we mourn over what our sinfulness does to the heart of God? Do we tear our hearts rather than just our clothes? Third adverb. The passage calls us, and this is really sweet, to repent expectantly. Look again at verse 13, the middle portion. Return to the Lord your God, for he is gracious and merciful, slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love. And he relents over disaster. Now, how did Joel know that the Lord is gracious and merciful slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love? Because God told us he's like that. The greatest prayer, maybe, in the Bible is in Exodus 33, 18, where Moses prays, God, show me your glory. And you remember the story. God put Moses in the rock and said, you can't see me face to face yet. That's for later. But you can see me as I pass by. You'll just catch a glimpse. And as the Lord passed by, he declared his nature to Moses. He declared his glory to Moses. 
and he declared the Lord, the Lord, compassionate and gracious, merciful, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love. That's how Joel knew that God is like that. And he said, when by the grace of God we truly repent, with genuinely sorrowful hearts, it is the character of God as compassionate and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love, to relent from disaster and to restore his people. I love the little scene in the fourth, fifth of the books of the Chronicle of Nar- Chronicles of Narnia, The Silver Chair. In the first part of the book, a little British girl named Jill has been brought into Narnia, but she doesn't know anything about Narnia. And as she arrives in Narnia, she is incredibly thirsty. And she sees, just a little ways off, the most beautiful, clear, flowing stream that you can imagine. There's only one problem. There is a huge lion between her and the stream, whose name, of course, is Aslan. She says, "Um, Mr. Lion, do you eat little girls? Aslan responds, I have eaten girls and boys, men and women, kingdoms and realms. And the story continues like this. Will you promise not to do anything if I come to the stream, said Jill? I make no promise, said the lion. Jill was so thirsty now that without noticing it, she had come a step closer. I daren't come and drink, said Jill. Then you will die of thirst, said the lion. Oh dear, said Jill, coming another step nearer. I suppose I must go and look for another stream then. There is no other stream, said the lion. Do you see the point? The stream is the reviving work of God's grace that you and I need as a church. But between that reviving work and us stands God. Will we approach the stream through him? We can, because we have the confidence from his own mouth that he is compassionate and gracious and slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and relents from disaster. We can repent expectantly, expecting God to respond out of the nature that he himself has revealed to us. And yet, and yet, even as we repent expectantly, we must not cross the line into presumption So fourth, 
we repent submissively. Look at verse 14. No sooner has Joel reminded the people the Lord is compassionate and gracious than he says in verse 14, who knows whether he will not turn and relent and leave a blessing behind him. Joel's warning, yes, we repent expectantly, but we must never presume upon the will of a God who is absolutely free and absolutely sovereign. I have been praying for revival in the church in the United States since evangelical leaders began to call us to do so in 1976. For 42 years, I have been praying more or less faithfully that God would revive his church. And yes, there have been pockets here and there. We think about the 1995 revivals on a number of Christian college campuses that had true impact for the kingdom of God. But in those 42 years, it has not yet pleased the Lord to bring widespread revival in the church in the United States. And so, like the persistent widow in Jesus' parable, I continue to pray with that balance. Lord, you're compassionate and gracious, slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love. But you are also God, and you are perfectly free, and you are perfectly wise, and you are altogether sovereign. And so if Jesus, your son, would submit to your will in the Garden of Gethsemane, surely I, who am far, infinitely far below your son, should submit to the wisdom of your will. Do you see the balance? This operates across the spectrum in our lives. We pray and we seek the Lord and we do so expectantly because he's compassionate and gracious. And yet he is a sovereign God and he is altogether free. And we do not dare pray presumptuously fifth and finally the passage calls us to pray pure heartedly pure heartedly by pure heartedly I mean for the glory of God look how the text ends in verse 17 between the vestibule and the altar let the priests, the ministers of the Lord, weep. This is apparently their traditional place where they would stand in the temple area. And say, spare your people, O Lord, and make not your heritage a reproach, a byword among the nations. Now, before I read the next sentence, we can pray for revival. Our heart's sin is so subtle in our hearts sometimes. We can pray for revival out of wrong motives. 
They were tempted to pray for revival just so the Lord would lift the locust plague. We could be tempted to pray for revival so that the church could become a big deal in the United States of America. And we could impress everybody. There's only one ultimately right motive to pray for the revival of the church. There's only one ultimately right motive to pray for anything. The glory of God. Look at the last sentence. Why should they say among the peoples, where is their God? Do you see that prayer? It's like so many other prayers, especially in the Old Testament, where godly people say, God, if this situation continues, the nations will say the God of Israel is no kind of God at all if his people are this weak. And you and I should say, God, if the church in America continues to be so sinful with leader after leader being exposed for sexual immorality, if the church in America continues to be weak, Lord, not least of all because of me, the world's going to look and they're going to say, their God must not be all that great if they're so weak. Our weakness as a church brings reproach to our God. And so we should be on our knees Asking God to grant us the grace of repentance, of turning from sin and seeking his glory, that God's glory might rest upon the church and that the peoples may see and declare their God is a great God. As the needle on a compass points always to magnetic north, does your life by the grace of God, does my life by the grace of God, do your prayers by the grace of God, do my prayers by the grace of God, point always in the direction of the glory of God. Well, let's ask this question as we close. The Israelites heard God's command. Return to me. Turn from your sins by my grace and turn back to me in repentance, seeking me for the spiritual renewal that only I can bring. Did they repent? Answer? Yes. How do I know that? Look at verse 18. By the way, they repent somewhere in the white space in your Bible between the end of verse 17 and the beginning of verse 18. And I know that because look at what verse 18 says. Then the Lord became jealous for his land and had pity on his people. That would not have happened had they not repented. 
The Lord answered and said to his people, Behold, I am sending to you grain, wine, and oil. I'm lifting the locust plague. I'm restoring the crops. And you will be satisfied, and I will no more make you a reproach among the nations. I will restore my glory to my people. My brothers and sisters in Christ, I would submit to you that other than God himself, the great need of the church in the United States is that God in his mercy and compassion and grace would stir in us a spirit of repentance, of turning from our sin and turning back to God, embracing him for all that he is for us in Jesus Christ, that the reproach of the church might be lifted and the glory of God be seen more clearly than ever among us. Let's pray. Our Lord, we have heard your word to us this evening. And it is a hard word, God. And it is amazing that we are powerless in and of ourselves to even to repent. But God, by your grace, because of your compassion and steadfast love and mercy, you can bring a spirit of repentance to your people. Lord, we ask very personally, each one of us tonight, that Holy Spirit, you would search our hearts for sin and grant us the grace that as you reveal it, we would agree with you, God, that our sin is what it is and that you would grant us the grace of repentance for the restoration of the church and for the glory of God. We pray in the name of our great and mighty Savior who died to free us not just from the guilt of sin, but also from its power. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen.